Welcome to Awakenings Movement Podcast. Awakenings Movement is a community where dreamers become believers and believers become doers. First of all, I just want to celebrate my little, I have a, I feel like I have a set up here today. And I love the, 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 the images of my set. I love the basketball right here. That's Tasha's basketball. I love the paintings, the bass, the amp, the, the keyboard. I just, and my rug, I just love this little set. I feel like it's so like official. Oh, thank you, Shelly. I'm sorry, y'all, I'm so thirsty. I tell Devon all the time, yo chick, she's so thirsty. And I really mean like <laughs> actual thirst, like not like the hip hop sense. I mean like the physical sense <sighs> of thirst. Okay, um, so we're gonna start. Um, dude, I just, I want to um, first communicate that um, I have been so angry for the, last, the past few weeks and I'm tired of us coming to Sundays and like talking about the, the last like hashtag tragedy and, um, and how angry it makes me and how, you know, like what's happening is, you know. But I do have some cultural observations that I think we can respond to um, in a manner that is different than anger and, and a bit more productive, you know. Um, and so, of course, we're going to begin with scripture because Jesus is really a great, uh, I love his emotional responses to things, and I love his responses to his own emotions. So as we read this story today, let's, again, not read this as a Bible story full of rules that tell us how terrible we are, but rather a, um, a story out of history that is a record of God's reputation a record of Jesus's character, and a little bit of a how-to for us when we're faced with similar circumstances. Can we do that? Yes. All right, good. So here we are. Um, this is beginning John chapter 11. This is the story of Jesus and Lazarus. Um, and Lazarus, as you know, was a man who died and was resurrected. But we're going to dig, dig a little bit into the story. Hey, my Valentine. Hey, Jeannie. <laughs> rolling, 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 we're doing the winning now. Um, they got that kid in play. So anyway, sorry. Um, let's start with uh, verse 1. A man was sick. His name is Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, to give you a little bit of context, this was the same Mary who massaged the Lord's feet with aromatic oils and then wiped them with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Master, the one you love so very much is sick. So this is a family of siblings that Jesus really deeply loved, right? Yeah. That's John chapter 11, and we're at verse 1. Um, everybody kind of there? When Jesus got the message, he said, this sickness is not fatal. It will become an occasion to show God's glory by glorifying God's son. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Lazarus, but oddly, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed on where he was for two more days. After the two days, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea, okay? So where we are in the story is Jesus' friends send word to him that his homeboy is sick. 
Um, and he's in, he's in, um, he's in, so he's, I think he's in um, Nazareth at this point. And if he goes back to Bethany in Judea, that's where people are plotting to kill him. So not only is he dealing with having to go and like help his friend, but there's also people there that are literally plotting to take his life. So he has, and he has work to do here where he is. Okay. So when Jesus finally got there, he did go back. He found Lazarus already four days dead. Ugh. Bethany was near Jerusalem, only a couple of miles away, and many of the Jews were visiting Martha and Mary, sympathizing with them over their brother. Martha heard Jesus was coming and went out to meet him, and Mary remained in the house. Martha said, Master, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask God, he will give you. And Jesus said, your brother will be raised up. So when Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. He said, where did you put him? Master, come and see, they said. Now Jesus wept. The Jews said, look how deeply he loved him. Others among them said, well, if he loved him so much, why didn't he do something to keep him from dying? After all, he opened the eyes of a blind man. Um, so, you know, it's a lot going on in the story, a lot socially happening in the story. And there's more going on than just Jesus visiting his friend. Because some of the Jews that are visiting Martha and Mary are also a part of the, the plot. They're a part of the, 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 the crew that wants to kill Jesus. And so when, when we see that Jesus' anger is welling up within him, um, some interpreters believe that he knew that they weren't really there to console Martha and Mary. They were there trying to trap him, and they were using his friend's grief as an excuse um, for their political agenda. Um, so another thing to, to note is that during all of this, probably the most insensitive thing that somebody could possibly do is use another miracle against him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, have you ever had somebody use your accomplishments against you? Like, oh, you know how to study, you know how to study and get them good grades, but you can't come in here and do these dishes. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you're so good at your job, but you step right over these clothes. You know, things like that. It's like you using, you using my stuff against me. Okay, okay. I not no 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 Jesus Lazarus, come back. Um, <laughs> So that's another reason why he was mad. It's like, oh my gosh, I cannot, literally cannot win for healing. I cannot win for healing. <laughs> Is that, that's how y'all do me? Um, and so I saw this week that Serena Williams won Wimbledon. And this was like, again. Um, and she had like the plate, she had the plate on her head. She had, had the plate in between her arms and she was waving. And um, the most resounding thing that I saw next was she only won because she shaped like a man. And then the next thing is this reporter is calling for steroids testing. She must be on steroids. And I was like, why? If somebody wins, this is her 21st Grand Slam. She's been playing tennis since she's seven years old. Huh? She was love what? Denny's. Denny's. <laughs> oh, Denny's Grand Slam. No, if she ate them Grand Slam, she would not be playing tennis. Um, but, um, so I started to do some research on the Williams family because I was just so, I was just so interested in how these girls, both Venus and Serena, are champions in their own right. Because Venus has several titles under her belt as well. Uh, her daddy said Venus could be number one right now, but she's choosing to pursue a degree. 
And so Venus has gotten, I think, two degrees in the last like six or seven years. And so she put tennis on the back burner to pursue her degree. And they are also um, part owners of the Miami Dolphins now, which is like, what? I was like, dang. So um, anyway, I did some research and I found an old, uh, an old video, an old interview from like 1993 of Venus. Um, and uh, oh, thank you, Shelly. Uh, Venus in an interview, she was 14 years old, and um, she's being interviewed on ABC. Uh, I think the show was called like Day One or something. Williams, that's Venus and Serena Williams' daddy. And um, what just happened in the interview is, is for, for some of y'all who may have, it may have been a little bit lagging, is Venus was being interviewed by a reporter, and the reporter was like, do you think you can beat her? And she's like, I know I can beat her. And he's like, you really think you can beat her? And she's like, yes. And so the reporter has such disbelief in this little girl's confidence that he's starting to kind of question her in the interview and her daddy steps in and says, hey, 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 brother, <laughs> you need to move on to the next question. <laughs> now, I have to tell you, Shelly had to edit out some of the interview because it was some of the choice words her father used with the man were not appropriate for this setting. <laughs> um, but he essentially said she's going to be playing tennis long after your blankety blank is going to be in the grave. So just believe what she says. And so I was like, wow. I never, I never seen. And, and first of all, I look at uh, Venus in the background when she go to YouTube the video. Venus is just like, <laughs> I told you, <laughs> y'all don't know this man is crazy. <laughs> um, and so I started to do some research on Richard Williams, Venus and Serena's daddy. And did y'all know that Venus and Serena Williams' father decided that they would be tennis pros before they were born? Yeah, he decided before his girls were born that they were going to be tennis champions. And when they were born, he wrote an 86-page plan for their career. Uh, and when they got old enough, he, well, as they were growing up, they became, um, you know, toddlers. Uh, he ordered some tennis magazines and some tennis rackets, and he taught himself and his wife how to play so that he could teach them how to play. He became their first tennis coach after being self-taught. Um, he didn't know nothing about tennis himself. Wow. He ordered magazines. He said, oh, and a few videos. He got him a few VHSs, <laughs> <laughs> popped them in, and voila, Venus and Serena. Um, but this man, you guys, literally created conditions for his children's success. He said, that if, he said I taught my girls, if you believe you are the best, you can be the best. Now, I watched this interview with him. Um, which is another, like, just as, as crunk as he was in the interview that we just saw, like, imagine, like, 30 minutes of that um, in another interview. 
And he made some very salient points. One of them is that I told him, he said from the beginning, I, I decided that my girls would be champions. And I decided not only would they be champions in tennis, but I wanted to tell them that they could do whatever they want. He said, so now they have several businesses. They have several degrees. They have several ventures, and they have several um, ideas that they want to explore because they believe that they can do it. Um, so he created the conditions for champions. So last week we talked about creating conditions for belief, and we taught, and, and, and Marlon did a great job. He gave us some very practical ways to continue the creative legacy of Nina Simone, but not continue the destructive legacy um, that kind of fo follows her as well. And what I said, what I asked Marlon privately after church, because I was really struggling with um, the conditions that we're living in right now, I said to him, so what do I do with the anger? What do I do with the, um, with the emotions, you know? Because when Nina Simone did with the anger and the emotions, she applied it to her music, and her music became very um, rough. It became very violent. It became very um, revolutionary, but to a, to a very extreme degree, to where even some of the revolutionaries were like, I don't know about that, Nina. Uh, <laughs> even some of the Panthers, Panthers were like, okay, Nina, wait a minute. <laughs> you know? Because she was on stage like, will you kill? Will you hurt people? And they were like, wait. Uh. <laughs> Like, yeah, wait. Um. <laughs> she said, kill? Oh, no, I got I to I go work in the morning. I can't kill nobody. Um, and so I, too, was like, how, you know, I'm angry, so should I infuse my anger into my work, and should I be like this angry strategist that's like, yeah, I'm going to show the world, like, how valuable we are with my planning, you know? <laughs> And, and, and Marlon suggested that I focus my attention on what I must do and, and process my feelings and leave them. You know, and I was like, leave them? I was like, no, I got to carry these angry feelings around with me. I got to use them as fuel. That's how change happens, right? And he was like, you know, I just want to you know, encourage you to consider feeling how you feel, being being completely honest about that, and then leaving it to then focus on what you must do. And I said, okay. And so as I began to do some research on Venus and Serena and Mr. Williams, and as I you know, looked through scripture to see how Jesus handled uh, times where he was angry and also had things to do, um, I, I learned a few things. And the first, there's like, I, I learned that we can kind of chunk this process into three steps, right? The first step is to grieve it. Whatever the conditions are that make you upset, whatever the experience that is currently happening that, you know, um, is, is troubling, troubling us, let's take the time to grieve it. So that's the first thing is to grieve it. And, and Jesus did that in verse 34, 35. He said, they said, Master, come and see. He went in, he saw his friend's body, he wept, right? So he took the time out to grieve. So to stop and take the time out, to literally assess what's happening, notice what's happening in our lives, in our relationships, in our culture, and literally grieve it, weep over it. Experience that emotion, right? 
So, so Serena goes, I am the most underestimated champion in the world. I watched an interview. She did an interview, I think, with like Time or Life, one of those magazines. This lady has 21 Grand Slam titles, and she's the number one ranked female tennis player right now. And she said that I am the most. Oh, I never heard her cry like that. She fell. Oh, baby. Oh. So Serena goes, she starts off the interview and she says, I am the most underestimated champion in the world. <laughs> like nobody ever believes that I'm going to win. How many times has she won? How many times has she won? Out of 21 times, people still don't believe <laughs> that this lady is capable of winning. But she took the time in the, in the interview to grieve. She was like, y'all, I am the most underestimated champion in the world. I can win and win and win and people still don't believe that I am capable of winning. And here she is right here. I love this picture because she looks so happy. I'm like, look at this. I mean, I'd be happy too because a lot comes, it's a, like all the money can fit in there. Yeah. <laughs> you just put all the millions just right in that plate and just eat the plate just like a million dollar salad. Um, you know, but, but, but here's what I noticed about Serena's experience. People look at these, this list and they're like, one of these things does not belong here. Can y'all tell, tell me what this, how to pronounce this name? Uh-huh, and what's this name? And then the gal trailed off at the end. Alina, the minimum. And then Serena Williams. You see, Serena Williams does not fit the, the global view of superiority in tennis. Her name doesn't have enough syllables. Her body is not long enough. Her muscles are not lean enough. Perhaps her hair is different. Perhaps her complexion is a bit of a contrast, right? So she does not fit the ideal of a superior person. She does not, she does not conform to the ideology that most people hold as who is considered a tennis champion. Most tennis champions are these long-lived European women. And Serena Williams is not. She's a house. Some might say made of bricks. Um, mighty, mighty, you know. <laughs> yeah. Ow, you know. Um, and so what happens is, in our culture, when someone that does not fit the ideal of superiority demonstrates superiority, the culture's job is to immediately discredit them because they do not fit the physical form of superiority. So she must be winning because she's shaped like a man. We must test her for steroids. She must be taking some kind of drug because women who have names like hers and backgrounds like hers and physiques like hers don't win championships, even though this is her 21st one. 21st championship, you know, just the 21st just doesn't sit right with me. All them other 21s, those were flukes. <laughs> she must have taken drugs to, to, to win this match, you know. And so I personally have to stop and grieve the condition that our culture is in. Because guess what, guys? 
if one of these things does not belong here culturally right now, for her, that means that any, at any point, this can flip. And at any point, anybody's commonly held ideal of superiority, if, if you don't match that ideal at any point in history, then history or culture can, can flip on you, right? And, and I think that every person in this room, we all have experiences. We all have maybe outward appearances. We all have uh, background information or history that may make us uh, ineligible to excel or be deemed superior in what we're doing. Everybody in here. And so we need to be careful and we need to observe what's happening in our culture so that we can grieve the state of mind that we live in and so that we can move forward. So this hurts my feelings. Because guys, let me ask you this, and this is something that I want you to talk back to me about. What happens when we don't grieve? It what, what happens, Bo? It turns into resentment. That's right, Bo. What else? What else happens when we don't grieve? Stress. Stress. It blocks you from, it blocks your communication with God. Health problems. You're stagnant. That's what you're going to say nine on time. You're stagnant. You get angry. Y'all, refusing to process grief is choosing to bury the pain and stress that will inevitably resurface. You know, when we choose to ignore the circumstances that have caused us pain, when we choose to ignore someone else's pain and suffering, when we choose to ignore what pulls on our humanity, what we observe that is just painful, when we choose to ignore that pain, we just bury and repress stress and, and pain that will surface. And guess what? When it resurfaces, it'll be bigger and stronger than it was when we pressed it down. So we got to stop. And we got to acknowledge what's happening in our lives, acknowledge what's happening in our relationships, and in our culture, and we got to grieve it. And this is what grieving does. Grieving honors the pain and suffering of others. Grieving also honors your body. You know, when we shed tears, our tears are eliminating the stress and the toxins that we experience that are these, these psychological chemicals that literally become present in our bodies. When we cry, we eliminate, we tell our bodies that we are doing the process of grieving, like we literally communicate to our bodies that we are getting rid of this pain. And so grieving honors the pain and suffering of others and grieving honors our bodies. And I didn't sit and cry about Serena Williams, but um, I, I definitely have taken some time to say, gosh, this is really messed up. It really makes me sad. Okay, now what's next in the, in the process? The next step in the process is to leave it, like what Marlon told me. This is so hard, because it seems insensitive, right? right. To, to see something wrong and then to be like, okay, to leave it. But not, in, not if you grieve it first. If you adequately grieve it and you really process how you feel, and what the effects of this experience has been, then you can begin to move forward in a manner that is healthy. Let's look at Jesus' experience. Then Jesus, the anger again welling up within him, arrived at the tomb. It was a simple cave in the hillside with a slab of stone laid against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. The sister of the dead man, Martha, said, Master, by this time there's a stench. He's been dead for four days. Can we all read what Jesus said back to her starting at verse 40? Ready, go. Jesus looked her in the eye. Didn't I tell you if you believe you would see the glory of God? 
So out of everything that Jesus could have commented on, <laughs> out of everything that's going on, Jesus chose to move beyond all of that and focus on, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Jesus decided with his conversation to move forward. Jesus decided with his focus to move forward. Jesus wept over Lazarus. He was angry at what he saw. He got angry again at what he saw. But when it came time for him to respond, and when it came time for him to say something, and when it came time for him to act, his action and his focus was what? Focus on the glory of God. Okay? Now that's Jesus. Perfect. Okay. Have you guys ever heard of the Indian Wells 2001 match where Venus and Serena were supposed to play against each other? Uh, Venus hurt her knee, had to pull out. Hey, Ed. Venus had to pull out, and everybody got so upset that they had to miss the tennis match that they began to hurl racial epithets and insults at the two girls. Mm -hmm. The whole crowd booed them, and they shouted words that were, again, unrepeatable in this context, uh, to the point where Serena Williams boycotted Indian Wells for 14 years. She refused to. So all them grand slams that she won, they were not at Indian Wells. So for 14 years, she decided she would never play Indian Wells again because of how she and her sister were treated there. And this was in 2001, y'all. This is not in like the 1900s or the 1800s. This was like 21st century, the entire crowd. And Indian Wells is one of the most um, uh, affluent communities in the nation. Million, millionaires, some of the top millionaires in the nation live in Indian Wells. And so these people are supposed to be, you know, sophisticated and, you know, tennis is this posh sport. And as soon as these girls decide that they can't play because one of them is hurt, the crowd begins to boo them and yell racial insults. Talk about hurt feelings, right? And so instead of, and, 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 I, and I remember this vaguely because I was in college at the time, but instead of making a big stink about it, instead of making a big deal out of it, Serena said, I just won't play there. You know, if, if they don't respect and value my sister's health, if they don't respect and value our humanity, well, we just won't play there. 14 years later, last year, um, she returned there. She decided to end her boycott and return there, and she returned to a standing ovation. Um, and the crowd was essentially apologizing for what she had experienced in their community 14 years um, earlier, which I thought was really interesting. But her response, I love it. Rather than focus on fighting the racism that she endured, she just moved on to like dominating tennis in other matches, you know? And so that seems counterintuitive. You know, we want to stay in Indian Wells and we want to like appeal to the mayor and we want to like get a public apology and we want to, you know, we want them to like be crying and snotting. No, we're so sorry, Serena. We're so sorry, Venus. But instead of doing all of the things to advocate for her value in Indian Wells, she went on to just communicate her value all over the world. And 14 years later, without having to do anything but step on the court, they gave her a standing ovation and an apology. I thought that was so interesting how her experience leaving and focusing forward literally brought a full circle healing back to that community as it, as it pertains to uh, her particular relationship with it, right? But let me ask you this. What happens when we grieve, but we don't leave? We revisit the... What happens, what happens when we stay in our Indian wells? 
when we don't move forward. Oh, we don't win those other Grand Slams because we still at Indian Wells, stomping around on that old tennis court, right? What else? We don't fulfill our purpose. So when we stay in the space of grieving and we stay in that space of pain and suffering and anger, but we don't leave it, we never have a beginning, middle, and end to it, and we don't leave it, who actually gets injured? We do. We do. So the next step in this process that I'm learning is to leave it. Because, guys, staying in a state of grief can create conditions, the same conditions we mentioned, illness. We have to start now doing things to medicate that pain, and that becomes addiction. Loneliness. We end up perpetuating the thing we fear the most. Just leave me alone. We end up be feeling empty, and our dreams go unfulfilled. We don't win those, those grand slams. You guys are absolutely right. So here we have this face where we've grieved what we experienced, right? And now we have to leave that experience in the past where it is. We can't get it back. We can't stay there. So now what's the third step? The, the, you leave it, you grieve it, and then you just do that. That next thing. What's that next thing? For Serena, what's that next match? For Jesus, what's that next thing? For you, what is the next thing? What is that which you must do in your purpose and in your life? And trust that God, this master of our destinies, is knitting together that full circle that we want to see. He's knitting it together. He's redeeming the pain that we've experienced. If we focus on what is ahead of us and that which we must do, Richard Williams said this, whatever you expect from yourself is what you'll experience. He said, I taught my girls that whatever they expect out of themselves is what they will experience. So if you expect a negative experience from yourself, that's what you'll experience. If you expect to lose, you're going to walk onto the court already defeated. If you expect a negative conversation, your tone is going to precipitate the negativity that you expect. We are going to perpetuate the future that we already think is going to happen, whether it's good or it's bad. Now, Richard Williams has a, a, a controversial reputation in the tennis world because he is not afraid to walk up to anybody and say what he believes. Now, some of these things I agree with, some of these things I don't. <laughs> but you can tell that Richard Williams expects to see positive results for his daughters, and that is what he begins to initiate in his conversations with officials, with interviewers, with other tennis coaches. Um, and I watched an interview with him where this lady, the lady that was interviewing him, she was like, I'm, I'm already scared. And, and he was like, why are you scared? There's no reason for you to be scared. And I said, why is it so hard for somebody to uh, accept someone asserting themselves and not overestimate how violent they are? You know, that just, uh, again, I'm grieving the, the, the state of mind of our culture. So this underestimated champion in the world, do you know I did some research on Serena and I got tired of, of reading about her. I got tired of her 21 Grand Slam titles. I got tired of her most decorated tennis player at the 2012 Olympics. I got tired of reading over her, uh, her 100 honors and awards. I got tired of them. Like I was like literally counting, like there's like, a, like a, a website dedicated to her accomplishments and like the bullet points, I had to start counting by tens. Cause I was like, I'm so sick of this, this lady's awards. And this is since like, let's see, she's 33 now. So this is since like maybe 2000. This is not a, a long span of time. She's won over 100 awards and honors. 
you know. Yet she's still underestimated. Yet she still questions, her integrity is questioned. Her gender gets questioned when she wins, you know. And so this is Jesus's kind of the, 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 the end of this story. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him loose. Then to the others, he said, go ahead and take away the stone. They removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and said, Father, I'm grateful that you have listened to me. I know you always do listen, but on account of this crowd standing here, I've spoken so that they might believe that you sent me. Then he shouted, Lazarus, come out. And he came out, a cadaver wrapped from head to toe with a kerchief on his face. And at that point, I believe Jesus grabbed a stick, put like a little piece of foam on the end of it to look like a mic, and he just dropped it. You know? <laughs> Like, float it up, like. <laughs> At least that's what I would have done. He probably just humbly walked off, you know. Um, so, the, 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 so Jesus, after all of that, I mean, Mary and Martha turned on him. There were Jews there sobbing with secret plans to kill him. There are so many things. People were using his own miracles against him. There were so many things that he could have been like, you know what, forget all of this. I don't have to heal none of y'all. I don't have to be here, you know. But instead, he focused on that which he must do. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grieve Lazarus. I'm going to leave my emotions where they are. And I'm going to do that which I was sent on earth to do so that people can see and believe that God sent me. So then he shouted, Lazarus, come out. So my question to you is, you know, ask yourself, what must I do? How can I contribute meaning, beauty, and love to the world rather than respond and react to what makes me angry, to what makes me sad? How can I contribute meaning, beauty, and love to the world? How can I be a part of this full circle that God is knitting together to change people's perspective on what it means to be human and different and authentic in our culture. What must I do? Because God's doing that, it redeems the suffering and illuminates what good can come afterwards. It communicates that there is joy that can come after heartbreak and suffering. It communicates that there is positive that can come after negative. There is peace that can come after turmoil but if we stay in the grief part and we don't leave, or if we just walk right over what's happening and we don't acknowledge it and we never grieve it, then we don't fully step into our potential to be a part of this changing narrative. Because guess what, guys? The, the narrative is changing. We won't know for 10 or 20 years exactly how all of these social media um, events and all these hashtags and all these people getting pointed out for their uh, extreme cruelty, we won't know exactly now how the narrative is changing, but in 10 to 20 years, we'll understand how the narrative is changing, and folks will point to their relationships with us that helped them change their minds. They'll point to what they saw us do that helped them say, okay, wait, it might be possible for this person that I thought was this one way to actually be a contributing member of our society in a way that is very different than I perceive. Doing that, which we must do, redeems the suffering and illuminates what good can come after it. So as we close and as Devon prepares to guide us through our offering moment, I want, I want to just really encourage us to reflect on this question, what must I do? 
and how can I contribute? This is the response that we must have to the injustice that we see. This is the response that we must have after we grieve, after we notice everything that has happened, after we decide to move forward, this is the direction in which we must move. And that is how God's glory is ultimately revealed. We don't ignore it. We also don't stay stuck in it. We move on to the beauty that we must contribute to the world. Sure.